your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12. Uh, we're coming to a verse in the book of Philippians that may be one of the most misunderstood verses in the letter. Probably not the most misunderstood or, or misapplied verse, that would be in chapter 4, <clears throat> but maybe the most misunderstood verse in this letter. It comes from one phrase in particular in verse 12, the phrase, work out your salvation or work out your own salvation. And that, that phrase seems so inconsistent with the scriptures as a whole. And because of its perceived inconsistence, um, it has led to many different interpretations surrounding it caused many people, many professing Christians even, to be very confused because they want to reconcile that statement with the vast majority of other statements in the Bible that tell us we don't earn our salvation. And yet, for many, the plain reading of this verse seems to imply that we do have a part in our salvation. In fact, some have taken this verse and ignored the uh, potential inconsistencies and have built an entirely theological system on this phrase that is incredibly erroneous, all because this verse has given people trouble. And so, my aim today is to take verses 12 and 13 to look at the main thrust of this text, which is that phrase, work out your own salvation, attempt to explain what Paul is saying, and then show you how the rest of the verse, rest of the text contributes to what Paul is saying. So look with me there in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Now, as I said, the phrase, work out your own salvation, that's the thrust of the text. That's the, the main command, the point of the passage, the point of these two verses. It comes on the heel of the hymn in verses 5-11. through 11. We could call it, rightly call it the Christ hymn because it's a, a poem or an early hymn of the church dedicated to, as we've walked through, the the humility and exaltation of Christ. And then Paul, in verse 12, explicitly connects this verse and thus the main command, which is work out your salvation. He explicitly connects it back to that Christ hymn. It's a good reminder that what he had to say about Jesus in regards to his humiliation, his exaltation, those aren't just abstract beliefs or thoughts that exist somewhere else. They have very direct implications for our lives. They change the way that we live, essentially. That's what Paul's getting at in verse 12. Because of what I've shown you to be true of Jesus, because of His humiliation, even to the point of death, obedience to the point of death, and because of His subsequent exaltation, you have to be affected by it. There has to be a, a command. There has to be a, a natural result or byproduct of that work of Christ. And that is to work out your salvation. His death means something. 
His glorification means something. And it has direct application to our lives today. Now, what does Paul mean by that phrase, work out? Well, he doesn't mean uh, strengthening as if we're going to the gym. Uh, you'll, you'll hear people say that, uh, I'm going to work out. Now, that's not the meaning of this phrase. He's not saying strengthen your salvation. When I've heard most people say, they, they treat it almost like it's a math term. Work out that math problem. Come to the right conclusion. Solve the problem. Uh, and I've heard most people apply it that way. Work out your salvation. Try to determine if you are saved. Uh, they, they treat it more like Paul's other phrase, examine yourself to see if you belong to the faith. And so they take this phrase, work out, and they say, it means to figure out if you're actually a Christian or not. That's really not what Paul's saying in verse 12 or verse 13. The word for work has several meanings to it. It means to produce, to create. It also means to make something happen. Now again, this sounds like Paul's advocating for us to earn our salvation. Produce your salvation. Create your salvation. Make your salvation happen. But I've got five reasons, some even in the text here, as to why that's not the case. So let me tell you why Paul's not saying work out or earn your salvation. First, it's because the phrase work out your own salvation is corporate. The word you're there, it's a plural you. Paul is writing right here in this letter not to individual Christians so much as he's writing to the corporate church. That's been the theme since the beginning of chapter 2. It will continue to be the theme. It's a, a plural command. Now, obviously, we can take it and should take it as an individual instruction because nothing really happens in the corporate life of the church if it doesn't first happen on the individual level. So we can talk about these things. We can even apply these things individually. But it's important to note he's essentially saying to the whole church that you as a whole church need to work out your salvation together. Not so much individually, but do it individually as you also live together. It's a corporate, church-wide instruction. Secondly, Paul's not telling these Christians to earn their salvation because he already believes them to be saved. In verse 12, he calls them, my beloved, a term that is exclusively in the New Testament used for Christians. In chapter 1, verse 2, he's already called them saints. And so he's not now changing his mind all of a sudden in verse 12 and saying you need to be saved. He already believes them to be saved. He's also not saying that you need to sustain your salvation. That's because of the third reason I give you this morning. Ultimately, what he commands them to do is a work of God. In verse 13, he tells us explicitly, it's God who works in you. In chapter 1, verse 6, he says it's God who begun a good work in you and will complete that work. He's not now shifting the responsibility of salvation solely upon his readers or his listeners. He already believes and has already taught it's God who works in their heart. Fourthly, the meaning of the command in this text is not justification. And this is where we'll spend most of our time. So I'm just going to give you a, a 
quick summary here. It's not the point of justification. It's the point of sanctification. The command is wedged into the context of church unity. Verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, and verse 14 all surround this text, all surround the, the meaning of this command, and the, they all mean the same thing. They determine our relationships with each other as Christians. And fifthly, not so much in this passage, but in the Bible as a whole, the overwhelming teaching of the Scriptures is that we do not earn our salvation. It is a grace from God. I have many verses I could take you to, but I want to take you to one in particular because Paul wrote it himself. He wrote in chapter 4 of Romans, verse 5, to the one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The overwhelming teaching of the Bible, of the New Testament explicitly, but the whole Bible generally, is that we are saved by God's mercy and grace and love alone. We contribute nothing except, as Jonathan Edwards says, the sin that makes it necessary. God alone saves. So what exactly then is Paul getting at when he uses these clearly rightly interpreted words, work out your own salvation. I want to read you a quote from Sinclair Ferguson. I think he gives helpful commentary on this. He says, Paul is not thinking here of any good works that we may contribute to our salvation, but rather he's thinking about how we are to respond to the salvation which is already ours in Christ. We are not to work for it, or work it up, but rather to work it out. That is to make sure that its influence and its implications permeate the whole of our lives. Thus the words in verse 12 could be rendered, continue to work out your salvation. Because it's a lifelong process of obedience in which we see the significance of what Christ has done for us. Now, that's kind of a blocky quote. If you're reading it, it's easier to understand. If you're hearing it, not so much. So I, I basically read it for my own good this morning because I preached to myself too. But let me summarize maybe in, in easier to digest words. Paul's command here, it isn't to earn salvation, but it's to put forth the effort to conform your whole life to the salvation you already have in Christ. That's how I summarize this phrase. Let me say it again. Paul's command here isn't to earn salvation, but to put forth the effort to conform your whole life to the salvation you already have in Christ. You see, God does graciously give and graciously enable us to live according to salvation. But that grace does not absolve us of our responsibility to live according to it. Like Christ Himself in verse 8 of chapter 2. When He's described as being obedient, 
we also ought to be obedient. I've already mentioned the word, but the word we use to describe this is the word sanctification. It's a word that means to be set apart by God, set apart from the world to God, and to be made holy like God. It highlights our distinctiveness as Christians. Paul is calling us to embrace that distinctiveness. There's two parts to our sanctification that the Bible teaches. First and most importantly is God's part. Again, verse 13 and chapter 1, verse 6. God works sanctification within us. In fact, we have no sanctification without God first working. But there's a second part to our sanctification, which explains all the commands in the Bible that call us to obedience. That part is our responsibility to submit our lives to the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to live according to the gospel we now believe. And that living church, as I said, doesn't earn or even maintain favor with God. It simply honors God. So, Paul is telling these Philippian Christians, put forth the work and the effort to live according to the message you believe. In other words, it's put to death what is earthly in you. It's put off the old self. It's crucify the flesh with its desires. It's no longer letting the flesh have any room or control in your heart. It's laying down worldliness and wickedness and actively resisting your sinful desires and temptations. After all, James tells us, sin and temptation comes from the desires of our own heart. Well, to work out your salvation is to say, I'm no longer going to live according to that flesh. I'm going to live now according to Christ. I've been saved and justified by Christ. I'm being sanctified by Christ. And I'm going to do my best effort, my responsible work, to live according to that salvation. Which means our minds are changed. Our wills are changed. Our desires are changed. Our motives are changed. Our actions are changed. Priorities are changed. And specifically, what Paul's getting at in this, this verse, our relationship with each other has changed. Specifically, Paul's telling them to work out their salvation in the context of church unity. Remember, back up into... Verse 1, 2, 3, and 4 of chapter 2. If there's any encouragement in Christ, he says, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Skip down to verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing with each other. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Yes, our salvation has many benefits to us, to, uh, to us and, and to our lives, and it, 
it causes all sorts of changes to take place. But chief among them is how we view God's people. Specifically, how we love His church. Unity and harmony in the church is no second degree matter. Unity, harmony in the church is the result of your salvation. In other words, Paul's telling these believers in the context of their impending conflict, you need to live according to what you're professing. You say that you're Christians, you need to live like it. The converse of that is also true, church. Things like division, disunity, bitterness, resentment, broken relationships, harboring hatred. Those things ought not even be named among God's people. Certainly among God's people. A church should not be marked by division, disunity, anger towards one another. The obvious for Paul, the obvious result of your salvation is harmony with God's people. That's the plain teaching of the whole New Testament. We've looked at these verses before, but John 13, 35, the world will know you're my disciples by what? The love you have for one another. Notice it's, it's very specific also. It's also very narrow there. Not just love, but the love you have for one another. Your brothers and sisters in Christ. 1 John chapter 4 teaches the same thing. The way that we love each other, John says in that chapter, is indicative of whether or not we're actually saved. If you don't love God's people, John says, it's plain as day, you're not saved. If you love God's people, it's because God has first worked in your heart. Ephesians 2. We have the kind of love that unifies us in such a way that it transcends all sorts of differences. Diversity among God's people glorifies God. Because it's a supernatural picture of God's grace working in our hearts and our lives. The way that we love each other, church, is a dramatic expression of our salvation. Or sometimes lack thereof. And that in God's wisdom and God's plan is meant to be a witness to a dying world. They are meant to look at God's people and see our salvation working out through our love for each other, our unity and our harmony, by the fact that we count each other as more significant than ourselves, by the fact that we don't grumble or dispute, but we live together and work together in harmony, by the fact that we look out for the interests of one another over our own interests. Those are things that display God's powerful grace working in our hearts. Frankly, what else could explain it? What else could explain people from different backgrounds, different opinions, different political alliances, all coming together in love and harmony and unity, worshiping the same God? What could explain that if not for supernatural divine work from God Himself in our hearts? 
our love for each other is meant to be a supernatural, otherworldly witness. And here, Paul says it's because it's explicitly connected to your salvation. So work out that salvation. Work it out individually. Work it out together. Chiefly in terms of your harmony with God's people. It's a natural fruit of it. Other ways to say it, if, if you're born of Jesus, then you will act like Jesus. If you're born of Jesus, you'll love what Jesus loves. You'll hate what Jesus hates. You'll care about God's people. Love God's people. Pursue God's people. You'll care about the witness that we project through our relationships with each other. Remember in chapter 4, verse 2, these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, they're, they're divided. And they're causing disruption in the church. And it's threatening real division. And so in chapter 2, Paul's already addressing it by saying that is not to be true of God's people who have salvation in their hearts. It's plain, should be plain to us, that our enemy would love nothing more than to disrupt our unity. Our enemy works to let hurt feelings fester. He works to let miscommunication go unchecked in our midst. Our enemy loves nothing more than for us to take offense at each other at every turn and in every conversation. He strives to blur the line between essential gospel issues and secondary issues. He works and too often succeeds at making God's people believe that kind, loving, gracious conversations aren't worth the effort. He strives to enable an atmosphere that harbors grudges. And he pushes such subtle things because he knows oftentimes better than we do the power of the church's witness when she loves herself when her members love each other. If he can remove unity and harmony, if he can disrupt the church's relationships, he can destroy our witness and furthermore, destroy the spiritual growth of the members of a church. And so He works and labors to fill our minds and our hearts with things, thoughts, desires that if we're not careful, will breed disunity among us. Good things. But the salvation that Paul talks about in verse 12, it means we don't have to believe or listen to the lies of that enemy. 
means that there's a different way for God's people. A different way to view each other, a different way to think, a different way to live, because God Himself has put His own love in our hearts. We now have a new kind of power, a new kind of grace, through the indwelling Holy Spirit Himself, to treat each other differently. To look like Christ to one another. To actually count others as more significant than ourselves. To embrace self-denial and self-sacrifice. Get this, to even lay aside our individual rights for the good of one another. We even have the grace and the power through this salvation to decrease so that Christ may increase. In chapter 3, verse 20, he'll say it differently. He'll say basically, to live as citizens of heaven. You're a different kind of people now. That expresses itself primarily in your relationships with each other. Now there's several qualifiers in these verses. I hope I've got across here that the thrust of the text is in the context of unity and it's to work out your salvation or live according to the fruit of your salvation, specifically that unity and harmony. But Paul adds in verses 12 and 13 a few qualifiers to this command. Three of them actually. The first is that we are to work out our salvation in sincerity. Notice he says, as you have always obeyed, so you should now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. It's a regrettable fact that we are prone to be people pleasers and constantly tempted to act one way in front of one person and another way at another time or another way when we're alone. Paul is calling these Philippian believers not just to put the show on of working out their salvation, but to genuinely, sincerely work out your salvation even when nobody's watching, even when the apostle himself isn't present. He knows the kind of people that they are. He's already told them how much he loves them. In chapter 4, he's going to say, you're my joy and my crown. He knows that they have partnered with him. He knows that their fellowship can be a sweet fellowship because he's been in that fellowship. He's witnessed and seen the love that they have for him, the love that they have for each other, the love that they have for Christ. He knows that they've obeyed their salvation. He knows that they've obeyed the gospel. And that's why he says, as you have always obeyed, this has always been a mark of you, always been true for you. So put forth twice the effort now that I'm not there. There's some kind of mechanism built in the life of a church by God's goodness where, well, at least hopefully, church leaders and certain people in the church are, are meant to be and given to be examples. And when we're around them, we, we often feel called to live in a higher way, a more godly way, a more holy way. I hope you have somebody in your life that just their mere presence calls you to strive for holiness in a greater sort of way. Paul was that example for these people. 
And the danger always is when we feel like no one is watching, no one is looking, no one is there to hold us accountable, no one is there to know, then maybe I can slack off on these things. I'm convinced that's why there's a massive learning curve in new marriages. Because as Jamie found out all too quickly, I was not the guy she thought she married. We were dating and I was much more attentive, loving and kind and patient. We get married and she realizes I leave my shoes in the middle of the floor and I don't do laundry and all those sorts of things. It's because we act one way in public than we act in private. And Paul is writing here and saying, don't let the the working out of your salvation only be for show and only be done in public and only even be done when you come together. No, if you want unity, if you want the, the product of your salvation to yield the fruit of unity and harmony and love for God's people, then it can't just be practiced on Sunday mornings on the Lord's Day. It must be sincerely, genuinely practiced even when I'm not present. And you have to put forth twice the effort to keep pursuing it in my absence. Church, we are called to work out our salvation, but we're called to work it out from the heart. Not just in external show. Kind conversations are edifying. Verbal encouragement, even physical expressions of love, like a hug. Those things build us up. But they are only hay and straw that will be burned if they don't proceed from a genuine heart of love. Secondly, the second qualifier he adds to this is not just this call for sincerity, but this call or this realization at least that you're called to work your salvation out with fear and trembling. Fear is is a unique thing for God's people to seem to understand in the Bible. Um, there's, there's kind of two ways that the Bible talks about fear. In one sense, Paul will write to Timothy and say, uh, God did not give you a spirit of fear. And yet in another sense, the Proverbs, the Psalms, and almost every, every book of the Bible talks about the importance of fearing the Lord. And so there's an unhealthy fear Christ seems to make a good distinction when he says, don't fear those who can only kill the body, but fear him who can kill both body and soul. So there's a a wrong kind of fear, and an unhealthy kind of fear, specifically as it pertains to each other, what each other may think or do or say. But then there's a good and a right kind of fear. That's fear of the Lord. What does the fear of the Lord actually mean? Well, in its most basic sense, it means it's a a roadblock to prevent you from going down a sinful path you shouldn't go down. Because, after all, who wants to sin against the one who has all power in his mere breath? Fear in the Lord is a realization that God is all-powerful. He is the final judge. He can do as He pleases and He despises wickedness and that fear is a barrier to keep us from running down dangerous paths as Christians as God's people 
We don't fear. We don't possess a fear that causes us to run from God like Adam and Eve in the garden. This fear is unique. This fear may keep us from going down sinful paths. But it's also a fear that makes us run to the one that we fear. And seek mercy and grace and forgiveness. But the catch is the fear of the Lord makes us do that quickly. We do not want to linger unreconciled to God. But fear isn't the only thing he mentions here. He mentions trembling. It's a unique coupling that Paul uses in this verse to tie to working out your salvation. Together, these words fear and trembling mean a certain sense of being awestruck, specifically by God. Not necessarily awestruck by your own salvation, but more so awestruck by the one who gave you that very salvation. In other words, it's a pointed, stark reminder that the command to work out your salvation isn't just merely coming from the apostle. It's coming from the author of your salvation. It's coming from God Himself. The one that's worthy of fear and trembling. Which elevates and stresses the importance of what Paul's saying here. He could have merely said, work out your own salvation, and we would have been able to understand the point. Rather, he elevates it by saying, Work out your salvation, by the way, in the presence of the one that causes fear and trembling. Unity and harmony as the product of your salvation in the life of the church isn't a secondary matter. How you treat God's people, think about God's people, view God's people, talk to God's people matters tremendously to God. You are to do it from a heart of sincerity. You are to do it with the awestruck reality of God Himself. With the fear of not disobeying Him. And the awesome realization that He is making you a new person. In other words, we're not just to love each other blindly based on just one or two commands. We're to pursue love and unity and harmony as the outworking of our salvation with the understanding that we do so in the presence of God Himself. Of the one who watches. Well, finally, verse 13, the third qualifier it is God who works in you. Work out your salvation. It is God who works in you. When I was a kid, I used to think Paul was a little bipolar because these things are opposite of one another. He gives us a command of our work and then says, oh, by the way, it's God's work. But when you come to a right understanding of what he's saying in terms of working out your own salvation, living according to your, your salvation, then you know exactly what he's saying in verse 13. It's God who's doing the work in you in the first place. You see, if you try to live out your salvation without actually possessing salvation, we have a word for that. Hypocrisy. It's a false expression. It's a, 
vain pursuit. In fact, it's impossible to attempt to possess any sort of righteousness without God first working salvation in your heart. You're called to live according to that salvation, but you cannot live according to that salvation if God has not first worked in you. And notice the the comprehensive nature of His work. It involves both our work, our action, also our will. God works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. What does it mean that God works in you to will to our will for our will, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. The word will there implies desire, commitment, devotion, setting your face and your heart towards something. In other words, when God works in you salvation, then that produces a desire to live according to that salvation. He changes your very will You won't even desire to honor God with your life. Not sincerely, if God doesn't first work in your heart. But one of the best indicators of having and possessing true salvation from Christ is having the true desire to sincerely honor God. And not just out of the the mental fear and, and knowledge of what may come as a consequence, but out of sincere love and devotion to God Himself. He doesn't just change and affect our will. He enables our work. God works in you to work for His good pleasure. Paul tells the Ephesians to be strengthened in your inner man by the grace of Christ. He supplies the strength. He supplies the encouragement, the edification, the the enabling, the desire, the fortitude. To keep persisting. You know, it's amazing to me. I didn't really plan on sharing this, but this morning, today, has not been one of the best days ever um, because I have broken many things at the church building this morning. It was one of those days where just about everything I touch breaks and goes wrong. And so I'm difficultly preaching from an iPad this morning. That's a long story. But you you emerge from those situations where you're like, okay, everything has gone wrong this morning and I'm a little bit anxious. I'm a little bit tried. Everything's been difficult. And I was just sitting here this morning thinking how amazing it is that God just in an instant washes all that away. When you sing such truths like Christ the sure and steady anchor, or I surrender all, and you hear the voices of God's people worshiping too, God just keeps, keeps you going. He enables you to persist. He, he grants you perseverance. When you're beat down with everything else in life, when nothing seems to be going right, God keeps sustaining you. So Christian, you're called to work out your own salvation. You're called to to submit your life to the gospel. To, as he said earlier in chapter 1, verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's your command. That's your calling. And yes, FYI, you have a responsibility to put forth the effort to make that happen. But 
But when the road gets rocky and your soul gets dry and everything comes barreling down upon you and your stress levels elevate, it's not to yourself that you need to look for endurance and perseverance and sustenance. It's God because He works in you both to change your heart, your will, but also to enable you to keep serving Him. Notice the result here. He works in you both to will and to work for what? His good pleasure. I don't know if there is, you can instruct me later, but I don't know if there's any greater desire for the Christian heart than to please the Father. To have the approval of God in Christ and to live a life pleasing to Him. I have no greater desire. My eternity would would be made. It would be a heaven to me all in and of itself. For the Father to audibly say, I'm pleased with you. I know He is in Christ. That's one thing. But But to also look at your sanctification, your progress in the faith, and to say that, have the Father in His kindness and His grace say you're growing, you're moving, you're doing well. I'm pleased with your effort. I'm pleased with you. That's my chief desire, church. Paul gives us a clue here how we can work for the pleasure of God. It's by yielding our will and our work to God Himself and then working out our salvation specifically in our relationships with each other. You want to please God? Exalt Christ. You want to please God? Exalt Christ in public. And in your heart? You want to please God? Love His church. And sacrifice for her. Elevate her. Don't stain her with complaining and grumbling and disputing. Be part of the washing of her with the water of the word. Cherish her. Build her up. Nurture and care for her. That pleases God. By extension, Paul isn't just talking to these Philippian believers. He's talking to you and I this morning. Primarily, God is talking through these words. This is God's Word. He's telling us that we ought to live according to what we believe. We are to live like saved people. And to live like saved people means we are to pursue, protect, preserve, Unity and harmony and love with each other. And we're to do so sincerely. We're to do so in the presence of the awesome God. We're to do so by the transforming, sustaining work of God. And if we do, we not only bear the right witness to the world, we not only enable spiritual growth with each other, We also please God. Just say again, maybe maybe you're at that place where, I don't know, the love of God's people is very difficult for you. We've all been there. 
But maybe it's, it's starting to dawn on you that it's an impossibility. That maybe you've had seasons where you enjoyed being around God's people, but for the most part, your life is characterized by going through the motions, being here because it's duty, and not really loving God's people. If that's you, the Lord's calling you this morning to look deep within and assess if God has worked salvation in your heart or not. If you know God has worked salvation in your heart, then perhaps today's the day where you need to recommit yourself to His bride. Seek His wisdom, His insight, His help to better love His people. To honor Him by caring for His people. Maybe you have found yourself in this season of life tremendously blessed by God's people. They've drawn near to you. They've cared for you. They've loved you. God has loved on you through them. Today is a day of rejoicing for you, a day of thanksgiving for you. I trust that if we submit our hearts to the Lord, His Spirit will guide us in right response and application. Our Heavenly Father, Your Word is sweet. It is not just medicine for the soul. It's the very source of revelation that gives us life. We have no life apart from You. And we do not know You apart from Your Word. We do not even know ourselves apart from Your Word. But because of Your Word, we know that we are called to live according to our salvation. To live in a manner worthy of the Gospel. To put forth the responsible effort to bear the right fruit of saving faith. And we know that we're called to love each other, to care for each other, to serve each other. Because that's what You've done for us and that's what You are doing in our hearts. Please bless us with real, heavenly, unity and harmony. Please bless us with heavenly love for each other. Grant us sincerity. Grant us an awestruck realization of this calling. Grant us the glimpses of your work in our hearts and our lives to bring it about. May our love for each other come from our love for you. And may it please you, God, and serve the gospel's message. In Jesus' name, amen.